Morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here at uh, Resurrection Church. And we're in a series called Outdated, where we're looking at uh, various relationships and uh, just going through the book of Ephesians, uh, starting in chapter 5 and believing in chapter 6, as we look at what the Bible has to say about various relationships in our lives. And uh, today, particularly, uh, we're going to cover what uh, may be a little bit awkward in church, probably shouldn't be, but, but we're going to be covering sex. And so if you remember uh, two weeks ago when we covered the biblical role of men and women in marriage and what the Bible has to say about that, I said that if I changed the title uh, when I put this sermon on YouTube, if, it, if I changed it from the biblical role of men and women to should she make me a sandwich, then it would get a bunch of clicks because no one cares what the Bible has to say, but they still have questions about and want answers on specific questions. And so sure enough, we changed the title. We stuck that on YouTube. got 175 views. Normally it gets like 40. And so today uh, I decided to title this message, Does God Want Me to Have More Sex? It's going to break some records, y'all. <laughs> We're setting some new standards on YouTube. Uh, because... There are a lot of opinions and a, a lot of quasi-answers about the questions that we have around sex. In fact, nothing is probably more distorted in our world today than sex. And um, so we're going to look at Ephesians 5, 31 through 33, which is the, just the next portion of scripture that we're going through. And this specifically talks about sex. And so we're going to have what is a very frank conversation about it. Uh, I, let, me, let me just give you the three points real quick of what we're going to cover today. And, and then we'll kind of get into this. Number one, both the world and the church have wildly distorted sex, wildly. Uh, number two, sex is an amazing gift from God with a purpose. And number three, sexual union is intended to mimic Jesus' desire to love us. It's in uh, intended to mimic Jesus' desire to love us. Now, here's <clears throat> one of the problems that I have, and, and, and look, there are probably not a lot of things uh, on this world that get me righteously angry. <laughs> Probably plenty of things that get me unrighteously angry, but righteously angry. But one of them, because I lived through this distortion, is how poorly the church, so I'm talking about the whole church, not just this church, the whole church has handled the topic of sex. And what we're going to find as we open up the Bible today is this has actually been true for a long time. Uh, there have been really poor distortions of sex all the way back into the formation of the church. And the early church did, had the same problems. But, but one of the things that has really bothered me, and, and, I, and I understand why it happened, is that because we looked at a broken, sinful world and how they distorted sex, we inside the church decided, oh no, that's dangerous, and so we should, we should be, essentially we should overcorrect. That's what we've done. And so in, in the church, what we've done, particularly over the past 50 years, at least when I've grown up in the church, is that we were so concerned about our kids or our grandkids uh, going out and having premarital sex or listening to the world about sex that, that we have essentially created a subject that is taboo in the church. We just, we just can't talk about it. And we don't always say it in those terms, but if I looked at the total number of sermons that I've heard about sex in the 40 years that I've been in church, they're almost always taking sex and making it sound dangerous and bad and gross and just, man, just stay away. And it's always about how dangerous and terrible it is. And so at some point, I'll just be honest, most of us that grew up in the church went, I don't believe you. 
I don't believe you. And we went somewhere else for answers. And, and I went somewhere else for answers. I finally got to the point and said, I don't believe you. And I went looking for answers elsewhere. And here's the problem with that today. Today, answers are more readily available right now than they ever have been in history. Your kids are three-second Google search away from answers. Not good answers. Actually, terrible answers. But they're available real quick. And let me tell you, if if your child or a teen or somebody in your youth group or even a young adult has to choose... Just think about this, between coming up and going, hey, I have a question about sex, (laughs) probably not going to happen, or Googling it passively on their phone or in their room, they're going to choose that because we've made it so awkward to talk about and so unacceptable to have a discussion about, and and it's just like, oh, we're not going to talk about it at all, so we've sent all of our kids elsewhere for answers by being silent. That's our fault. And of the small minority of of kids that actually listen to us and we're like, okay, I guess it's gross. I guess it's terrible. I guess it's dangerous. I'm going to believe you. Then they get married. And they're like, my husband is so gross. We're laughing, but I've sat in the marriage counseling sessions over and over and over again where women who've grown up in the church have been told it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, and they get married. And all of a sudden it's supposed to be good. And they're like, what, what, what? We did that. That's our fault. And it's ridiculous. And so because it's in the text, because we were going to cover it anyways, we're going to cover it and we're going to be really blunt about it. And that's why we put up all the disclaimers, not because what we're talking about is actually inappropriate, but because we've been told for the past 40 years that what we're talking about is inappropriate. And it's not, it's normal. In fact, what we're going to find is God designed it this way. He gifted it to us. It existed in the Garden of Eden before sin even entered in the world, so it's not sinful. We don't have to look at it that way, and we certainly should stop distorting it in the church. In fact, Kent Hughes would go so far as to say, when Christians act this way, when we distort the truth about sex, when Christians act this way, it's not because they are being faithful to their faith, but precisely because they're not. If we want to be people of the book, if we want to be biblical Christians, then we need to treat all subjects like the Bible does, even if we feel uncomfortable treating them that way. A couple quick disclaimers. This may be for you if you grew up in the church like I did. This may make you way more uncomfortable than it should because you've just sat in silence in the church for way too long. I understand that. I'd like to be sensitive toward that, uh, but, but we owe it to younger generations to be frank about the subject. And then secondly, um, there are going to be some of you who have experienced real sexual trauma, sexual abuse in your past. And uh, even though we're talking about God's design, we understand that God's design has been distorted in a broken world. And and because of sin, even though we're going to talk about God's design, there are people that have abused and misused this. uh, And and, and I just, I want you to know we love you. Um, It wasn't God's intention for that to happen. Now, Let's start here. Uh, if you're single, if uh, you're unmarried, maybe because you're younger, maybe you're just not married, maybe you're a little bit older, but you've never been married, and you grew up in the church, and you grew up with whether they, it was stated this way or just kind of the unspoken thing, that, that the church has essentially communicated to you um, that sex is pretty dangerous and it's pretty scary, and you went through this whole purity culture thing that we went through a couple years ago that was just devastatingly terrible and toxic. And everything around sex has been just described as it's awesome or terrible. I just, 
Here's the thing. Here's what I want you to hear. You were lied to. Maybe with really good intentions. But, but, but sex? Man, sex is freaking awesome. I, it's my favorite hobby. Like, I would give up fishing in a second. I just, you, you got lied to, okay? It's really good. It's not bad. It's not gross. It's not terrible. Sex is beautiful. It's an amazing gift from God. In fact, you know, we're still, science is still studying what's going on in the brain during sex because we still don't understand. It, like, it really, when Paul calls it a mystery, he, he didn't even have any of this science. And even today, in 2022, we're still studying this, not really fully understanding the gift that God gave us in this. Now, like anything powerful, it can be dangerous. And I was trying to think of an analogy and I couldn't come up with a perfect one, but I just, I came up with two. They're not very good. I'm gonna use them anyways because they're funny. Uh, a chainsaw. Sex is like a chainsaw. When you really need to cut down a lot of lumber, man, there's nothing like having a chainsaw. Because if you had to do that with an axe, it would take you like months and you'd never, but like a chainsaw is also, it's great when it's used in the right way and it's incredibly devastating when used in the wrong way, right? We've all seen the horror movies. Chainsaws can be really dangerous. Yes. Okay. So powerful things can be really dangerous when they're misused. Um, a really powerful prescription drug, like a really powerful painkiller, is absolutely necessary and amazing right after surgery when you really need it, but boy, can it be abused? Can it wreak devastation in people's lives when it's abused? Okay, I want you to think sex in the same context. God gave it to us for a, in a, a very specific purpose, and it's amazing, and it, it does things that there's nothing else on earth that will do in the context of marriage when used appropriately and when used inappropriately. Nothing is as devastating and painful as sex. It wrecks lives. So it's not bad, it's powerful. Therefore, it can be dangerous. That's all. All right, <clears throat> Ephesians 5, 31 through 33 is where we're at in Ephesians. Let's read that and then let's talk about that. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That phrase right there, you can just underline, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That phrase, the two become one flesh, is a quote that Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. It's used multiple times to describe this mystery of what happens in marriage, and he's going to expound on it for like two chapters in 1 Corinthians. So we're going to go there, and we're going to look at his detailed explanation of what he's talking about with these two becoming one flesh, so we better understand what he means by this, and then why he would mirror and, and say this refers to Jesus and the church. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, to one of the most confusing verses that I have ever read in the Bible and I didn't understand until about two weeks ago because it doesn't make any sense. It says this, and I'll read the rest of it. It says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for the food. Okay, what? Like that's just weird. There's just weird stuff in the Bible sometimes. It's in quotations. Hopefully in your Bible it's in quotations because Paul is actually quoting a common day theme, a motto that was used, a cultural slogan. And so it doesn't make any sense to us, but you would have totally understood it back in the first century. It'd be like if someone said like, um, catch me outside, how about that? Like, <laughs> you get that right now, but in 30 years, no one is gonna have any clue what that means, okay? Or if you said like, 
oh my gosh, your, your microaggressions are triggering me. Like, you understand what that means right now, but if you say that in 50 years, people will be like, huh, what is microaggression? Like, do you understand what I'm saying, cultural sayings? Okay, let me just keep going. Food is made for the stomach and stomach for the food. It's a cultural saying, I'm gonna explain it in a minute. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise up us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall then I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. There's our, 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 our uh, quote again. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Okay, Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the body is a cultural phrase that actually came from the teachings of Plato's, uh, Plato years earlier. So it had been passed down from Plato's originally, original teachings, and it was this concept in Greek culture that there was this separation between the physical and the spiritual, that they were almost on different planes. And that meant that you could do anything you wanted with the physical, and it wouldn't actually affect the spiritual at all. So you could, if you were hungry, man, just eat whatever you wanted. It would have no impact on your spiritual. And so what they did is they said, so sexual desire is just another form of appetite, and since the physical has no impact on the spiritual, you can feed that appetite however you'd like, and it'll have no impact on the spiritual. And so what they'd done is they'd use that to basically condone uh, all types of sexual immorality and lust and prostitution. And so even inside the church, Corinthians were running around and, and sleeping with prostitutes and going, don't worry, food's meant for the stomach and the stomach for the food. Like, like, I can do whatever I want over here. It's not going to affect my spiritual walk at all. And Paul's like, wrong, wrong. No, in fact, that's not what sex is for at all. That's completely wrong. And his response to sexual immorality, and by the way, the word that he uses here for sexual immorality is pornea. It's not the word for adultery. He's talking about any sex outside of marriage, any sex outside of marriage. So even if you were unmarried, pornea, where we get our word pornography from. And his, what he's saying is any of that is so bad, flee from it, run from it, escape from it. Now, when he says, he explains why in this sort of weird way of talking about two becoming one body, which is exactly what he says in Ephesians 5. And this is why we're in 1 Corinthians, kind of looking at this, well, what does that mean? He is not saying two become one flesh, mean, meaning the, the physical act of sexual union. That, that's not what this refers to, okay? He, he has a very holistic very broad view of what body's gonna mean. And I'm gonna show you that in just a minute. But the reason we know that he doesn't mean that two becoming one is about sexual union or physical union is that the, the verse itself wouldn't even make any sense. Like, like if he meant that, he would actually be saying, uh, don't you know that if you have physical union with someone that you have physical union with them? Like it, it wouldn't make any sense. That's not the point. What he's trying to say here, and he uses two words interchangeably in different places in the text, sarx, which is the word for flesh, and soma, which is the Greek word for body. And, and not only does he use them interchangeably here, but he uses them interchangeably all throughout uh, scripture and his letters and in uh, the book of Romans. And, and, and most of the time when he uses this, he means everything about what makes you a person when he says that. 
So he's talking about your physical, your spiritual, your emotional. He's talking about the, the, the whole embodiment of your personhood when he says this. And so when he says to become one person or one body, he means more than just physically, but in all areas. And, and the impact of sexual immorality, according to Paul, is it's the only sin in which you sin against your own body. Now, here's what's weird about that. Um, if, if you were just talking about the flesh, that couldn't be true. Because we can all come up with other sins that you can do against your own body. Self-mutilation, suicide, gluttony, addiction, taking drugs. I mean, you can, you can do all sorts of things against your own body, right? So how can sexual immorality be the only thing? Because he's not talking about just the flesh. He's talking about the whole body, spiritual, emotional, physical body. And he's saying that sexual immorality, because of the design of what sex was intended for, is the only sin in which you're sinning against the whole personhood that God made you. So it matters because it's powerful. Because it's powerful, if it's misused, it's dangerous. Here's what Tim Keller says about these two distortions. This first one that we're looking at, which is that sex is just an appetite, and the next one that we're gonna look at, which is that sex is really gross and we should stay away from it. The first one is this. Keller says, God did not create sex to simply be a defiling but necessary mode of procreation. God didn't reluctantly go, man, I don't know how these guys are gonna come up with kids, so I'm just, I'm gonna have to give them sex. It wasn't reluctant. It wasn't intended to be like, oh no. But here's the second thing, and God is, Keller says this as well, and God did not make sex as a form of self-gratification or expression. So sex is not about you feeling good about yourself, and it's not about you finding a way to express yourself or your sexuality. It's neither of those. Instead, sex was designed as a way to do radical self-devotion. It, it was designed as a way to give yourself away. Sex is God's way for you to give yourself to someone so deeply that it results in personal transformation. I want you to think about that because that is very different than what the culture is going to teach you and it's actually very different than unfortunately what the church often teaches us because sex is God's way for you to give yourself to someone so deeply that it results in personal transformation. Now here's why that's such a, a big deal both because of this distortion in the first century and the distortion we have now is we live in this society that considers it okay to give your body away without giving yourself away. So, so we're still trying to split these two in our culture today. We're still trying to say, I can physically have sex and, and hold on to my own independence and my own individualism. That is not what the Bible says at all. You, the, the two becoming one flesh is that you don't get to hold on to your individualistic nature. You don't get to hold on to your individualism. You, when you join one flesh, it's not just physically, it's emotionally. It's the whole person joins. That's radically different than what the world teaches. And let me show you. <clears throat> when you have sex outside of marriage, you are actually destroying this, this person-shaping, sort of relationship-developing transformation the way God designed it. That's why it's so impactful emotionally. And, and listen, I, I think we can agree, even if you don't believe in the biblical recipe for marriage, we can agree that nothing does damage in our culture like sex. 
Nothing has the catastrophic effect in our culture, the distortions in our culture like sex. And, and, and culture will, will get it wrong and then we'll get corrected again. Like, like 20 years ago, men's health used to say that porn and masturbation was a healthy way of just self-expression and dealing with appetites and urges. And then about 15 years later or so, they, re, they retracted the whole thing and published uh, scientific journals that said, man, masturbation is destroying your sexual desire. Men's health, not Christian magazines. And we start to realize that abusing what God gave us in the wrong ways actually is not good. It doesn't benefit us. It doesn't make us content or satisfied. Paul's not saying sex is gross or bad. He's saying it's powerful. And powerful things used the wrong way can be dangerous. Now, he's then going to get to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and he's going to have to address the other side of this distortion that also existed in the first century inside the church already within the first 40 years of the formation of the church. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2, he says this. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, so they are asking him this question, and he's responding. That's why it's in quotes. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So there was another view in the first century called, and I'll mispronounce this because it's hard to get right, asceticism. And it was this idea that like we should push off anything that was carnal, anything that was pleasurable, anything that was um, of earthly regard. And, and so essentially it looked at sex as being dirty, as, as being gross, as being like required for procreation, but to be basically pushed off and resisted other than the necessity of having to have kids. And he's, Paul's going to absolutely destroy this idea in the course of chapter seven. Um, but before he works through the, the healthy version of what sex should look like within marriage, um, I want to talk about what he says in chapter seven about singleness. And it's at the end of the chapter, but I think it's important to look at because it's pretty revolutionary. It may actually be the most revolutionary thing in this chapter. First Corinthians seven, 26 through 28 says this. Um, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. Now, the idea in the first century that it was okay to stay single was revolutionary. I get that it's not a big deal in 2022. But in the first century in the Roman Empire, it was crazy. Like you were married off by 18, and if you weren't married by 18, like, in fact, 18 might be late. Like you're kind of a slowpoke if you waited to 18. You were behind. And, and part of that was that there was nothing culturally about individual achievement. We didn't celebrate anything that you could do on your own. Everything about achievement and success was viewed in the lens of family. And so if you didn't have a family, if you weren't married and having kids, there was no way for you to, to, to climb up the corporate or social ladder. There was no way to celebrate success. It had to be in the context of being married. When Jesus comes and says it's okay to live a celibate life that is single, when, call, when Paul comes and writes these things and says, man, it's absolutely okay to stay single, it was mind-blowing. Let me tell you how mind-blowing it was. Caesar Augustus passed a law as emperor of Rome that if a widow did not remarry within two years, she was fined. You are not allowed to be single. The only single people in this culture were prostitutes. 
And then the church comes along, Jesus comes along, Paul comes along, and not only says, absolutely, your freedom in Christ allows you to not chase down this validation through marriage and family because you have validation through Jesus Christ, but then enables you to live a life single by coming in and supporting widows. Why, why do we see such an emphasis of supporting widows all throughout the scripture in the New Testament? Because the government would fine you for being a widow. Because there was no way for you to live without marrying. And the church comes in and goes, Jesus has got you. And, and the, the bride of Christ, the church, will, will help feed you and support you so that you don't have to go marry to be validated. You, that was mind-blowing. That's the first time and the first religion in history to say that. We kind of gloss over that because we're, we're used to singleness in 2022. But it was revolutionary. All right. Um, <clears throat> just, just a quick reminder that the Bible does say that if you get married, you will have problems in this world. <laughs> okay? <laughs> marriage existed before the fall, meaning before sin entered the world. But marriage changed pretty fundamentally after Genesis 3, after sin entered into the world. And so now, when you marry in this world, ladies, let me just, ladies, if you're single, if you get married, you're going to have to marry someone who's a sinner. Because God hasn't fully transformed them yet. That means that you're going to marry into a relationship in which the Bible is going to call you to submit to a husband who's got all kinds of problems. And you're going to deal with the implications of the curse from Genesis 3 about how you're going to rail against, women are going to rail against the authority of their husbands. And you're going to have to deal with that. Men, if you get married, you're going to be taking over the responsibility to steward, provide for, answer for your wife and your children. Like you, you'll bear all the responsibility for them. So, so you may want the blessing, but you better be ready for the responsibility. And that's what Paul's basically saying. Like, hey, understand, you don't have to do this. All right, number one, the world and the church have wildly distorted our views of sex. Number two, sex is an amazing gift from God with a purpose. And I really want to dive into the purpose, why and how God uses sex in marriage for our good. Now, let me, let me read you some verses that are going to blow your mind. When I read these the first time, first time I can remember ever reading these about six or seven years ago, I read them and I went, there's no way I just read that right. And I read them again and I thought, I, 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 there's no way I read this correctly. And I went and got a commentary and I checked another translation and I got my wife. I was like, is this what I think it says? I cannot believe this is in the Bible. And how come no one told me this was in the Bible? Here we go. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, the wife does. Do not deprive one another. Where has that been all my life? I have heard, I have heard dozens, if not a hundred sermons on sexual purity 
and this and that about sex, and what the Bible has to be about sex, over and over and over again. And not one time have I ever heard someone get up and preach to me that men and women in the marital relationship are never supposed to deprive one another of sexual intimacy unless if they both agree for some time to take a break from sexual intimacy to fast and pray. That's the one exception? Where's headaches? That is mind-blowing. Look, okay, first of all, guys, this is why I tell you to read your freaking Bible. You didn't know this was in here. This is, this is, this is my new life verse, by the way. I'm going to get a little tattoo of scripture. <laughs> what I want to do is I, I, I want to look at how can we, this is so different than I think what most of us believe about sex and marriage. Like, it, it, we should never say no seems crazy, seems impossible. Some of you ladies right now are going, this is not possible, so no way. And, and I want to look at what the Bible has to say about marriage so we understand how these verses even make any sense. Does that make sense? Three of you are like, somebody, somebody is like, please do. Okay. If, ladies, if... And if you're listening online, ladies, and your husband comes to you and wants to quote 1 Corinthians 7, 3 and cannot tell you about the rest of the sermon, you just send him right back to YouTube to listen to the rest, okay? In order to understand how these verses make any sense in marriage, we first have to take a step back and look at what biblical marriages was intended to be really quickly as a foundation, or none of this is going to make sense. And so in order to talk about what biblical marriage is supposed to be, I have to explain to you the difference between a transactional relationship and a covenantal relationship, because they're very different, and they're viewed differently. And if you don't understand it, you're going to really, you're not even going to get the gospel if you don't understand covenantal relationships. So let me explain that. A transactional relationship is a relationship that is based off the value that you can provide to me. And so I have a transactional relationship with a cashier at Walmart because I go up and I have some goods and I'm willing to pay some money and they're willing to give me those goods for the value of that money. And if the, the, the value of the money is ever too high, then I'll just leave the goods there. I don't got to buy from you, Walmart. I'll just walk out and go somewhere else like the dollar store, which is not a dollar anymore because of inflation. Anyways, squirrel. <laughs> a transactional relationship is completely based on what you can do for me. And the moment that the cost is too high or the value is not good enough, I'm going to walk away from that relationship because it's transactional in its nature. But then in the Bible, we have this completely new type of relationship that is explained to us called the covenantal relationship. And God, of course, is the example, and he, he explains this to us. And it's a relationship that's based off a promise that he makes to us. Marriage, according to the Bible, the biblical version of marriage, is actually a covenantal relationship in which both spouses make a promise to one another and God in front of witnesses and base the entire relationship off of those commitments, not the transactional nature of providing value for each other. And if you try to take the marital relationship and turn it into a transactional relationship, it is devastation, it is toxicity. It is a mess. And most of us, I've been doing marriage counseling long enough, I'll give you lots of examples, but most of us know someone that treats their marriage like a transactional relationship, and many of us who are married have at times treated parts of our marriage like it was a transactional relationship. 
And it's the worst thing ever. The worst sexual advice I ever heard from a Christian was a marriage counselor who had actually had a, like a, he was doing a conference and the first day of the conference was phenomenal. I learned a ton of stuff. And the second day he explains how wives should hold back sex and not give it to their husbands until they do a to-do list. And I went, that does not sound like the Bible I've read because it's not. That's transactional in nature. And your marital covenant was never intended to be transactional. It was covenantal. How do, you, how do you know? Because even the traditions of marriage that people that are far from God have like adopted, even though they don't even believe in God and they're not Christian, they pulled these Christian things into their marriage. You ever seen two people that are, they don't believe in God at all, but they have a Christian marriage and they're doing vows? What are vows? They're covenants. We've all been to a wedding, right? Four of you? Get out more. COVID's over. We've all been to a wedding, right? They always do the exchanging of vows. They always sound the same. In sickness and in health, in poverty and in wealth, in sadness and in joy, till death do us part. We've all sat in a wedding probably in which we knew they weren't Christians and they didn't really mean that. And, I, and like, it's a good thing they're never honest in the vows. Can you imagine transactional vows instead of covenantal vows? Like in health, but not if you gain more than 20 pounds. <laughs> yeah, they're not down with the poverty thing, so you're going to have to make at least six figures. And then I'm going to be committed. You know what I'm going to say? Completely and utterly committed to you as long as you don't lose your hair. You know, as long as I'm happy and satisfied, I'm going to be totally committed. If you heard that in a wedding, you'd go, that ain't going to last long, right? But people do that. I'm just not happy anymore. Hmm. Is that, is that part of the wedding vows? You and I were created and designed for a covenantal relationship. Your brain, your sexual desire, your desire to be fully known, not just by God, but by another human, that these are all aspects of the intelligent design God used to create us for this. So we're going to work on sex inside the context of a biblical marriage, and we're going to use this working definition for biblical marriage. A covenantal, heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong relationship of mutual submission. A covenantal, meaning it is built on a promise, heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong relationship of mutual submission. That comes from Ephesians 5.21, which we looked at two weeks ago. These are the boundaries and conditions that sex was designed to promote and intensify so, I told you that the question we were going to answer in today's sermon was, does God want me to have more sex? And just like Jesus, I'm going to answer a question with a question. Does God want me to have more sex? Well, are you in a covenantal, heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong relationship of mutual submission? If the answer is no, then no, he does not. Because that's not what it was intended for. But if the answer is yes, then my answer is, yeah, you probably should be. At least based on statistics in the U.S., you should probably be having a lot more sex. Like, we've actually gotten to be 
to the point, especially as in marriage, um, we get through the difficulties of life and it becomes more difficult, especially when you add kids, because man, those are some selfish little creatures. It'll be real, right? Wow, they're whiny. <laughs> sex becomes harder and harder and, and there's, there's more difficulty in marriage and so sex actually becomes tougher. It begins to devolve a little bit and so you look at the statistics and, and we're actually at the point now we're into sexless marriages where you're really more like just kind of like friends who may see each other sometimes but you don't have sex. I was talking to somebody and they said, hey, uh, Pastor Daniel, you know, I know you own a gym and you do a lot of stuff and like I've been, uh, I, I get a lot of like kind of strength training and stuff out of my, my job, but I don't really get much cardio. You know, what, what could I do for that? And I was like, have sex every day. And it got real awkward, just like it just did. <laughs> right? And I was like, what? Do you like running? And they're like, no. I was like, do you like sex? Yeah. Problem solved. <laughs> Why are we still talking? Get to work. Gotta have jokes. All right. <clears throat> When Paul's writing about this mystery in Ephesians 5, he doesn't actually have any of the science that we have here 2,000 years later. But just briefly, I want to talk a little bit about what science has figured out about our brains. And what I would submit to you is that science has completely and utterly proven the idea that you were created for a covenantal, monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong relationship of mutual submission. Your brain is actually designed for that. <clears throat> when you have sex, this is the science talk, by the way, if you're wondering. There'll be lots of clinical talks here. If you're really um, uncomfortable with the word orgasm, you're about to be really uncomfortable. When you have sex, the lateral uh, orbital frontal cortex, this is the front of your brain, uh, that is responsible for logic and ration and uh, making critical decisions. The activity in the front of your brain dives so low that it's almost as if it's not working. That's not all that unbelievable, correct? <laughs> so uh, during sex, you actually don't make good decisions. In fact, you're, you're almost incapable of making good decisions. Now, in a covenantal relationship, in which you're in a lifelong relationship, that's not really that dangerous. But boy, if you're in transactional relationships in which you think you can separate the physical from the rest of your emotion and you're going to make good decisions, your brain is actually telling you it can't because it's turning itself off. Now, the reason that the front of your brain turns itself off during sex is the front of the brain is actually what handles things like fear and anxiety. And so by the front of your brain turning off, you actually stop feeling fear and anxiety. Huh. That seems like a kind of good thing to do in the context of an intimate marital relationship. It might actually help a lot of things in the struggles of life. Let me keep going. Less fear, less anxiety. At the point of orgasm, both men and women's brains release massive amounts of two chemicals that are produced in your brain called oxytocin and dopamine. Now, we all probably know what dopamine is. It's the pleasure response. It's the thing you get in anticipation. It's the thing when you eat way too much sugar, you're like, ah, oh, dopamine. But oxytocin is something we barely understand. It's called the love hormone, and we're still studying it because we don't exactly understand how to even produce this thing outside of your brain producing it. Oxytocin is the same chemical. Um, it, it promotes bonding and intimacy and closeness. It's the same chemical, or one of the two chemicals, that is produced when a mom breastfeeds their baby. I want you to think about this. 
when a mother breastfeeds her baby, she's got this little shapeless amoeba. <laughs> it created a great deal of pain on their way out. That it better be a covenantal relationship because there ain't no transaction going on here that is beneficial for mom, right? That baby doesn't do anything good. It poops, it cries, it poops more. It's hungry. There's, it would have to be a covenantal relationship because in essence, it's a one-way relationship. And so God hardwired into moms that when they breastfeed, oxytocin is produced and released in their brain to create intimacy and closeness and bonding to that baby. Moms that, uh, because of medical reasons, are unable to breastfeed often talk about uh, an emotional distance from their baby and struggling to connect. Dads actually have a lot tougher time connecting to babies in the first six months of their life because oxytocin is not being produced in their brain because they don't have this response. And that same chemical is produced from men and women's brains during sex to produce closeness, intimacy, bonding. In both men and women, the orgasm signals a parasympathetic nervous system that will start to actually calm down your body. Your brain will churn out serotonin, which is a hormone known to promote good mood and relaxation. So your brain, during sex, turns off the logical parts that would have you overanalyze something and create fear and anxiousness. It will actually suppress pain. You are substantially more pain tolerant during sex. You will feel less pain, you will feel less fear, you will feel less anxiousness, it will release chemicals to cause pleasure, it will release chemicals to bond you to one another, it will release chemicals to cause you to relax, promote intimacy, and closeness. I want to tell you this weird story about a little mammal called the vole, V-O-L-E, vole. Um, it, you know, it's, it's about the size of like a gerbil, and scientists are really baffled by the vole. Because um, we have multiple species of vole that are, that are very similar. And they notice this weird behavioral pattern between these two very closely related species of vole. Their genetic uh, code is almost identical. It's 99.6% similar between the two. And yet, um, mating for the vole is actually a very complex process. It takes over 24 hours, which sounds like way worse than just dating. Um, one species of the vole mates for life. And until they die, they will be with the same mate. And the other species, genetically almost exactly identical, mates with anything they run across and will have dozens if not hundreds of mating partners throughout its life. Scientists are like, we don't understand why the behavior is so different. Do you know the only thing they can find the difference between their DNA is that the monogamous full brain produces oxytocin? Just like your brain. And the other one doesn't. God created you and your brain for a covenantal, heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong relationship of mutual submission. And when you try to take a body and a sexual desire and a brain that God created for one purpose and use it in a different area, you're going to find a lot of devastation there. And you're going to wonder why it's so broken. Does this make sense? All right. Now, why does sex devolve so much in marriage? Um, and why is sex so necessary 
for a good covenantal relationship. Well, um, here, here's one of the big things I would tell you if you've not studied this before. Um, can, can we all admit maybe from just anecdotal evidence that men's and women's brains are very different? Yes? Yes. If you're married, you're like, yes. Okay. Um, Bill and Pam Farrell wrote a bestseller book, sold over 2 million copies. They're actually the speakers at our marriage conference in a couple weeks. They wrote a book called Men Are Waffles, Women Are Spaghetti. And it's about your brains. And it's about the idea that men can compartmentalize their thoughts and tend to be very single track thinkers. And women actually think about everything at once and they actually can't really ever turn their brain off and their thoughts are almost always interconnected and sometimes rarely make sense because you can't follow the train of thinking. Amen? Yeah, okay. I just want you to think about this. Um, If I did not have sexual desire, it's very possible that I could get carried away at work and forget I was married for about three days. Like, I'll just, I'll just get started on a task and be really concentrated on the task. And like, days from now, I'll be like, I think I have a family at home. <laughs> oh, man, that's a, this is a mistake. But God hardwired into men's brains this, this sexual desire on a timer almost. Or you can't go very long without thinking about what is intended to be, okay? Not, sexual desire is not intended to be in your life, oh, I need pleasure. Oh, I need satisfaction. It was intended to be, oh, I, I need to pay attention to my wife. Oh, I need to pursue my wife. Oh, I need to steward my wife. Oh, I have a responsibility for my wife. Because otherwise, we're guys. I'd be off in the weeds somewhere. You'll find me in like Taft, just wandering. <laughs> Taft is my favorite, just, okay. anyways. <clears throat> so, so the only way that this seemingly selfish desire of sexual desire actually works in the context of covenantal marriage, if you really understand it, is that God needed to hardwire men with a desire to remind them that they had a responsibility to their wife and family. So every time you feel this sexual urge, men, in your life, it's God tapping you on the shoulder going, pursue your wife, pursue your wife, Go pursue your wife. Go pay attention to your wife. Go pursue your wife. Not, I need to be pleased. I need to be pleased. I need to be pleased. Now, sex devolves in marriage because marriage is hard and life is hard and life changes and you go through trouble in life, right? It becomes difficult and and you're trying to still figure out what this relationship looks like. And I think like, Oftentimes, when I've talked to couples about 1 Corinthians 7, 3, and, and, and you look at this and go, we're never supposed to say no. I have, <laughs> I have wives that are like, Pastor Daniel, you don't know the, like, if you do this, my husband would want to have sex every day, like all the time. You don't understand. I'm like, I do understand. So does every other man in here. <laughs> totally understand that. I, I get that. So, so we've got to, figure out how those things align, right? And, and there's, there's a major disconnect, I think, in how we're doing this because, and, and look, I did this thing a, a few years ago. It was really interesting. Um, I read these verses. This is like six, seven years ago. I read these verses. It was like, I did not know this was in the Bible. And I started to think about like, man, how, how would this even work? Like, I don't understand how this would work. And 
Because we don't feel this way, right? And, and, and so how do I align not feeling this way? How, when I, we've talked about this before. When I feel one way and the Bible says something else, who's right, me or God? So this is the problem I'm having. I'm reading this, I'm going, I don't understand how this is supposed to work because don't, we don't feel this way. And so I decided, um, I talked to my wife and I said, what if we did a 60-day challenge where we had sex every day for 60 days? Now here, men, whenever you're going to pitch something, if you have a formal name for it, it sounds totally legitimate. 60-day challenge, right? Why don't we just do this every single day? And uh, I learned some pretty amazing stuff. And, and really, all I was trying to do was say, man, the Bible says, like, this is, this is a staple of the Christian life. If you're married, you, you're doing this. And so we, we started this process, and I learned some amazing things about my wife, myself, and, and marriage. And one of those is this. Um, I found myself every day coming up with ways to pursue my wife more intentionally. And I did not predict that that would happen. And, and wise right now, you're thinking like, man, if we ever did this, I would never, I thought, oh my gosh, I would just, my husband's insatiable. That's not true. About day eight, you get really tired and you just want to cuddle. But what we've done is we've starved one another for affection and pursuit and sometimes sexual intimacy in our marriages to such an extent because we've distracted ourselves with other things that the, the pace of sex is so slow and it's so far between and it's so distant that there's this huge disconnect where we, this is how we govern sex in marriage, if we both feel like it. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say anything about how you feel. So, so we're not just sort of randomly waiting until that one chance encounter in our marriage where we both happen to feel like it and it lines up on the same day. We're actually being intentional. You know what it caused me to do? Put my phone down, turn off the television, and pay attention to my wife. Do, do you think that might be a good recipe in marriage? One of the reasons it got baked this into the marital relationship is, is not just for physical intimacy, but to require, let me say this a different way. The, if you look at the tone of this verse, do you know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say, you have these rights and you should go fight for them. You notice that? It doesn't say like, make sure you go tell your wife that she has to, no, it doesn't say any of that, does it? You know who the whole verses are addressed to? My responsibility to serve my spouse. Do you notice that? No one notices that, just I, I notice that, yes. It's not about fighting for my rights, it's about serving my spouse. That's the tone of this. The Bible's saying, the mutual submission part where you care more about your spouse than you care about yourself is actually the important part. And you've got to get to that. That's why, in case you don't catch that, in case you decide, you know what, I'm going to, I hate when people do this. You ever had someone weaponize the Bible? Do you know what I mean? The Bible was meant to be a sharp, precision instrument, and people love to pick it up and use it like a blunt instrument and just swing it around and try to hit people with it and attack people. You know what I'm talking about. We've all had the Bible thumper run after us with the Bible. If you try to take 1 Corinthians 7.3 and, and leverage it at your spouse to get what you want, you've missed it. You've entirely missed it. That's not the way the verse is written at all. 
And because, because we're so prone to do that, in Ephesians 5, Paul takes it a step further and he says, just like Jesus and the church. Well, why is it just like Jesus and the church? What does sex have to do with Jesus? Those are not two things we normally combine, are they? No. But Paul does. Because sexual union is intended to mimic Jesus' desire to love us. That's why he says this mystery is profound. And, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage, similar to Jesus, is intended to be an intimate love fulfilled through submission and service that transforms us over time. What you are listening to this sermon and we do this with all, all scripture, unfortunately, is we have this tendency to apply it to someone else. You ever do that? Man, I wish Karen was here to listen to this thing. We're intended to read this and apply it to ourselves, not our spouse. I just want you to make sure you hear that. So, so we don't take these, this idea of marital rights and think I've got to run out of here and defend my rights because that's not the example Jesus gave us. How much authority did Jesus have? All of it. How many rights did Jesus have? All of them. What does he do? He willingly came, laid down his life, emptied himself of his divinity in order to go to the cross to save us. So, so the reason that Jesus and the church are in here is so that you have an understanding that, that the marital rights are trying to explain what marriage is supposed to look like, but not so you can go fight for your rights, but rather so you can lay them down and serve one another. Does that make sense? Because if you don't understand the ideal of submission, of voluntarily submitting your rights, you're, you're going you're to really struggle with the idea of the gospel, of how much Jesus loves us, of what it looked like for him to lay down his life. Jesus desires a relationship with us that is so intimate in its oneness, the whole of us, that you could find contentment in him regardless of ever being married or not being married, having a good marriage, having a rough marriage, having a difficult marriage, that in any area of life, in any stage of life, your relationship with Jesus would be so fulfilling and so full of contentment that you would find such identity in him that everything else actually kind of paled in comparison. So number one, both the world and the church have wildly distorted sex. Number two, sex is an amazing gift from God with a purpose. Number three, sexual union is intended to mimic Jesus' desire to love you. I, if you hear nothing else today, I just want you to know that Jesus loves you immensely. He, he loves you like you have never and will never be loved in human form. And, and God gives us these gifts of marriage and gives us these gifts of, 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 of being a parent of a child. I think in, in some hope that we'll see in a reflection of when, when that is going well, when it's, in a, when it's healthy, we would see a little glimpse of how much he loves us. Do you ever think about how much you love your kid even though they haven't earned it at all? You ever thought about that? I think about that all the time. What is, it, what is your, what is a, a six month old done to deserve your love? Nothing. They just take, 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 take. And we love them. And I believe that Jesus did that so that we would understand how much he loves us. What have you done to deserve God's love? Nothing. Nothing. And yet he loves you more fiercely than you would ever love your child. He loves you more fiercely than you would ever love your spouse. That's the gospel. That's how much he loves you. 
And if we get that right, then marriage makes a lot more sense. All right. Uh, My hope today is that you did not hear this and you're going to go home and smash your spouse over the head with scripture in an attempt to guilt them into anything. Is that clear? Someone will be like, oh, okay. I do hope, if you're married, this sparks some really good conversations with you about your marriage, drives and motivates you to open up scripture, to go through the devotional, um, to to go to the conference we're having in two weeks, to, to get into marriage counseling, if that's necessary, whether it's lay counseling at our church or clinical counseling. Like, counseling's a really good thing. Talking about your relationships is a really good thing. If you're single, I want you to know that you are so free because of what Jesus has done. You never have to search for your validation in a mate, in a, in a, in a husband or a wife. As a Pulitzer Prize winning author wrote a book about just the secular nature of the world, um, just the idea of the death of the afterlife that You know, what's happened now in Europe and in the United States is we have such a huge volume of people that actually believe that there is no afterlife, that there's no real human transcendence, that there's nothing after this, that our consciousness at some point is going to die and it's it and we're extinct. And so because of that, um, for all those people, there's no hope in life. Once death comes, it's over. And so so his his supposition is that most of secular society now, they they needed, they desired some sort of fulfillment inside. And because they didn't believe in God and they don't believe in the afterlife and they don't believe there's anything else, they've actually pointed to romance. So now it's about finding the one. We've all watched a Disney movie, right? Yeah. Oh, if I could just find that perfect one, oh, my soul would be so fulfilled. And we put it on for our three-year-olds. And it's it's this inside cry for actual fulfillment and contentment that only Jesus has. And we keep reaching to different things for it in this distortion. Man, Jesus loves you. I just want you to know that. Jesus loves you. He desires for you to thrive. He loves your marriage. He's broken as it might feel at times. He loves it. And there's hope for you. Our elders are going to be here just to pray with you. Our prayer team will be up here. We would love to pray for you about whatever that that looks like in your life. If you don't know what it looks like to take uh, a next step with Jesus, there will be a bundle of people that would just absolutely love to talk to you about what that looks like. I want you to know you're loved, not just by Jesus, but by this church. I want you to know that it's okay to have struggles in relationships, whether in singleness or in marriage, we want to normalize talking about it. We want to have awkward conversations because they're healthy, they're really good. Let me pray for us and then we'll be here to pray for you and we'll get out of here. Father God, thank you for the gift of singleness and the gift of marriage, God, that you have given us such freedom in Jesus. Um, God, that we have contentment in any stage of life, in any relationship. God, we ask that you are glorified in our marriages, that you're glorified in our singleness. God, we ask that you help us to um, just push back against the distortions of the world and the distortions we see around sex and sexuality, God. Understand what it looks like to glorify you, Understand what it looks like, God, to to live out this fleshly human life in a way that uh, would bring us closer to you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.